Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. We're currently working on bonus episodes about the Kino Lorber virtual cinema release of Baccarat and Amazon Studios' cinematic new series, Tales from the Loop. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, and Keith Phipps. With American movie theaters largely closed, we're continuing our shelter-in-place special series, pairing films you can find on VOD or streaming services. And this week, we're continuing the theme with two films about disease, although this time on a much more personal scale than our last pairing of the global pandemic movie Contagion and the local epidemic thriller Panic in the Streets. Genevieve, you want to lay out what we're doing with this pairing? Sure. This week, we're starting with a metaphorical movie about the social oppression women face and how the pressure to conform to a specific brand of femininity can be literally poisonous. This story about an upper-class 1980s homemaker who succumbs to a mysterious illness is based around the idea that toxic social structures can literally be toxic, and that recoiling from them can be both personally hazardous and a form of seizing control by shutting them out. Wait, wait, I thought we were looking at a movie about environmental illness and all the ways we're filling our world with toxic chemicals, to the point where we're literally killing the most sensitive people among us. It's a warning against the poisons we're putting in the air, and the protagonist in the film is a sort of, uh, I don't know, canary in the coal mine, showing us what's coming up if we keep polluting the world and call it progress well i don't know what movies you guys watched this week i watched a sharp incisive metaphor about the spread of aids in the 1980s specifically addressing how the public and government's reaction to a subsection of the population sickening and dying was inadequate to the moment and helped the disease spread faster feels like an echo of our current moment with coronavirus where the government's open willingness to have some segments of the population die off reveals the inequities in the system. Okay, look, I get it if you don't want to dig into the feminism aspects here, but we're still doing a movie that's a kind of bitter satire of self-help culture, and that's about how culty and illogical they can be, and how buying into their messages can be as poisonous as the kinds of social and emotional illnesses that have people retreating from the world and joining cults in the first place. Well, the funny thing here is that you're all right. Todd Haynes' 1995 film Safe is openly a metaphor about the spread of AIDS, but it takes on self-help groups and toxic femininity along the way, and it's the kind of versatile metaphor that can be read in a lot of different ways. We're looking at it not just as a metaphor for the moment, and as an insightful look at the more emotionally confusing and complicated aspects of illness, but as a historical document about an era that has a lot to say about our own era. We're also looking at it in connection with Carlo Mirabella Davis's directorial debut, Swallow, a very similar, though more specific and narrow, story about a homemaker with a disease she can't seem to control, although she finds that having the disease is giving her control over a life that's spun off in directions she's finding oppressive. It's two films about sickness and mental health, both featuring magazine-perfect housewife archetypes who gain and lose control, and two films where the metaphors are bigger than the story. Uh, and the environmental thing. And the environmental thing. And a whole lot more. Stay tuned. Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. How are you feeling? I still have this, um, this head thing. What the hell is going on here? It's in the air, in the water, in our homes. Oh my God. It cannot be seen. Cannot be heard, cannot be stopped. So we can turn it on and off like a switch. We just don't know how to make it go away. Mm. It is not alien. It is not viral. You are perfectly healthy. You might want to consult someone. A psychiatrist. It is not natural to this earth. Your family and friends tell you that you're overreacting. Where can you go when no place is safe? Back in 2014, when Todd Haynes' film Safe came out on Blu-ray as part of the Criterion Collection, our own Scott Tobias interviewed the director about his intentions in making the movie. And while those intentions simultaneously reached back to the 1980s AIDS epidemic and touched on more contemporaneous environmental issues from the mid-1990s period when Haynes was making the film, a lot of his thoughts on the film resonate particularly strongly with our current coronavirus moment. Here's Todd talking with Scott about Safe. I wanted to bring up the behavior that we all exhibit around illness, particularly in the way we try to attach meaning and personal responsibility to illness, and how much illness and identity are mixed up with each other. These were definitely motivating interests of mine that I felt were absolutely and totally being played out in the AIDS culture around me at the time. Since then, AIDS has faded as a number one health emergency in this country due to extraordinary developments in treatment and the great fortune of those developments for many people. I still feel like we're a culture that is continually reminded of our vulnerability to contaminants and illness. The Ebola crisis was summoning up memories of the AIDS era for many people in the way it was being hysterically described at the beginning. It brought up a general sense of our fragility, even as we become more fortified by technology and knowledge, and our fragility as human beings on the planet, and the status of the planet, and the lower regard the sciences are being held in nowadays. They're all contributing factors to the sense of vulnerability and insecurity with our bodies, and that certainly hasn't gone away. In that sense, SAFE feels like this allegory about all kinds of indeterminate and imprecise notions of health, well-being, and immunity and peril, unquote. Well, that's rather a lot, and it's interesting to see a filmmaker describing his own work as tapping into something indeterminate and imprecise. But while Safe is a remarkably precise movie, with its chilly, sharp visuals and carefully delineated scenes and spaces, it does feel fairly indeterminate, as if it isn't forwarding any kind of specific agenda or message, so much as it's exploring a mood of confusion and an issue with no clear answers. Julianne Moore stars as Carol, a 1980s homemaker whose well-off husband Greg, played by Xander Berkeley, is perpetually busy at work, leaving her home to tend the garden, fuss over the maid, and scold the delivery service for bringing the couch she ordered, not the one she had in mind. Carol is a meek, quiet woman, with a tiny voice and an equally tiny presence. 
So when she starts getting sick for no clear reason, she doesn't advocate for herself particularly strongly. She seems actively embarrassed to be causing a fuss. But through a series of doctors and hospitalizations and tests that don't reach clear conclusions, she keeps getting worse and worse, with visible lesions forming on her face and periodic choking or vomiting attacks. Eventually, she ends up at a rural wellness camp for environmentally sensitive people, where a cultish guru type preaches a kind of vague, friendly gospel of kindness and openness, but also tells his charges that they're only sick because they're letting themselves be sick. Carol's eventual withdrawal from the world has been variously interpreted as a powerful act of taking control of her life and a failure to engage with the world. It could even be read as a metaphor for death. But while critics argued over what the movie ultimately means and how to interpret its slippery, subtle allegory, they've generally praised Haynes' work and Moore's portrayal as channeling a specific kind of American malaise, possibly one tied to self-absorption and self-regard, or possibly one tied to the relentless effects of capitalism, which are more than willing to grind delicate people like Carol down to dust if it means producing more and polluting more. It's a testament to Haynes' care with the film that while safe can successfully be read so many ways, it still feels intensely lived and of its moment, rather than vague or hard to grasp. Certainly it's clear that Carol really is suffering for something outside her control, even if it is also within her head. Her disintegration and confusion throughout the movie mirrors a very common experience with illness, the feeling of bodily betrayal, the way healthy people judge sick ones and look for logic and reason in their physical breakdowns, and the kind of magical thinking that sets in when sick people try to logic their way out of pain and fear. Safe is a primal, frightening movie, even as it's a hushed and thoughtful one. And it's a film that still speaks to the medical establishment's failings, to the limits of our knowledge, and to our fear of the unknown. The so-called safe space of the title is a brutal irony, because as the film suggests, it's just about impossible to be safe from our own bodies, no matter where we hide. First, what is your total load? Well, in the chemical-laden world in which we live, impurities are all around. Everyone must deal with a certain amount of impurities and toxins at any given time. And that's your load. It's the maximum amount of toxins your body can tolerate, which for most people is rather large. But a chemically sensitive person is not able to carry a normal load. What we have to do is unload. This means we go back to zero and starting from scratch, substance by substance, we build the load back up. Remember, the goal is to get clear. So safe is about a lot of different things, but I'm curious whether for you it plays as if it's about any one thing more than the rest. Like, if you've encountered this movie before, does it play differently for you now than it does then? If you're seeing it for the first time now, does it play as a movie about the moment or as a movie about the past? This movie has never really left me. <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, I've thought about it all the time. Literally every time I go down the uh, cleaning supplies aisle at the grocery store, I think about it. And I certainly think about it on those occasions where I've accidentally bought the garbage bags that uh, have Febreze <laughs> in them <laughs> uh, or the tissues that have Vicks in them. Uh, it's fumes. It, horrendous. Absolutely horrendous. And, and also just the intro of the keynote kind of underlined just how kaleidoscopic the film is in meaning and how you can look at it through all sorts of different interpretive lenses. But just that general sense of the world as being this hostile place is something being vaguely unright in the world that part of the film is what has stayed with me for so long ever since i've seen the movie and it's just it is one of those films that you just can't shake it it's just you know you feel like carol to a certain extent it's just like once you see this film it just it never leaves you 
it's funny you say that, Scott, because I have seen this movie before, but whether willfully or not, I had kind of like blocked out a lot of it in my memory. So watching it again this time was, uh, it wasn't quite a new experience, particularly because so many of the visuals are really distinctive and arresting. And just like my memories of this movie are just Julianne Moore being tiny in a large room, pretty much mm-hmm. like, like visually speaking. But because it's such an ambiguous movie by design, And because there is a lack of a really definitive arc, it's gone kind of slippery in my mind over the years, just in terms of how it's held together outside of like specific visuals and moments. So watching it this time, like I said, it's not like I watching it for the first time, but it is kind of like watching it for the first time uh, again. And as as far as your question, Tasha, it's it's funny that you uh, in that intro, you gave me talking about it as a feminist film, because I, I do think that what I respond to most in this movie, at least on this viewing, is sort of... Um, you know, how it extends the tradition of female hysteria and the fuzzy boundary between uh, mental and physical illness, and particularly where women fit into that history. Also, like the environmental component and, of course, AIDS allegory are, are very strong as well. And like, it's never about just one of those things. But I think in terms of how I think about this movie in my mind now, I think of it more in terms of being a quote-unquote women's picture, which is something that that Haynes has dabbled in in various ways throughout his filmography. Um, But I tend to think about it that way first and foremost. It does sort of pair in an interesting way with our previous pairing of Gaslight and the Invisible Man, Mm -hmm. just in terms of watching a woman struggle with something that's very real and very present to her, and that the man in her life is not entirely, certainly not as, well, evil as uh, the men in both of those movies, but he's still baffled. He still has no way to interface with it and no real place for it in his life. And while he is about as supportive as he can be given his character, there are a number of uh, like male doctors around mm-hmm. her, always male doctors that just don't believe what she's saying and are telling her what her body is and what her body is doing in ways that aren't helpful and don't resonate. So uh, just in that sense, it makes a really interesting uh, contrast with like literally the last four movies we've watched, watched for this podcast. <laughs> but Keith, what about you? Oh, it must be something in the air. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> I, I um, you know, I've seen this movie several times over the years, and it is. I think the intro is really great because it is impossible to read, but also, you know, impossible to read is all those things at once in a really interesting way. And what struck me this time is, I think it's. If I'm not mistaken, it's fairly neatly divided down the middle. I believe she's in L.A. for pretty much the entire first half of the movie, and in at the uh, New Mexico compound for pretty much the second half of the movie. And if you watch the first half of the movie, it's a lot easier to read it as a woman suffering from psychosomatic illnesses, some sort of hysteria, as, as you say, who is trying to treat it physically, and it's the wrong approach. In the second half, it's so easy to read her as someone who is clearly suffering from a physical illness as she gets sicker and sicker looking and more, you know, her complexion gets more broken out and, and more obviously ill, who is being treated by a bunch of cranks who have, you know, who are ignoring a very serious physical illness. And, you know, as there are all things in this movie, it's, there's nothing really to grasp onto to give you a, a solid answer. And Carol herself, and I'm sure we'll get into that, is such a hard to read character. You know, I mean, it, it, I think that's kind of like built into the design of the film is to have this this protagonist who we never really get to know for even though we spend like I think she's off screen for 
just the length of the time when the people are talking behind her back in the bathroom. I think that may be the only time that she's not on screen in this movie. Uh, at the same time, she's so kind of unknowable. Am I, am I wrong about that? I don't know that you're wrong. I, I do think that she's meant to be a little unknowable. But as the as the person that complained that one of the protagonists of Portrait of a Woman on Fire was opaque, uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm being contrarian here when I say I feel like I did understand who she was and where she was coming from. And I feel like Todd Haynes lays that out just in the first couple of moments with her. Uh, There's the one where she's having sex with her husband and Mm. she never once looks like she's really enjoying herself on any kind of personal or sexual level, but she looks sort of pleased. Like she's putting her arms around him. She's kind of smiling and just everything about her says, I'm doing my duty successfully. <laughs> like I'm accomplishing what I set out to accomplish here. Like she, she almost feels like she's patting him on the back in a like, good job, good boy kind of way That's rather a than a scene. sexual way. <laughs> what? I said it's a hot scene. <laughs> is it no, a hot scene? No, no it is very much not. Um, I, I'm just just checking, just taking, I was just, taking I was the just temperature. Trying to, I was just trying to like bullet point what you were saying there. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. There's just there's her face during the entire process, and it's it feels like a really excruciatingly lengthy process. Her face during the entire process is just kind of like you know I'm I'm here, but I'm maybe thinking about whether I should try a new detergent on the dishes. <laughs> I'm I'm here, and like this is part of my wifely duties, but it's not about me at all. And you see the same sort of thing as we segue directly from that into her taking care of the garden, her taking care of the household like deliveries, her complaining about not getting a teal couch when she sort of mentally expected a teal couch even though they say she ordered a black couch, uh, which is just a, a strange little detail, one of many that doesn't pay off in any very specific way. But it doesn't way. match anything in the house, Tasha. How could she have possibly <laughs> I, it, ordered a black couch? It doesn't go with anything they own. It's true. Um, but I, what I'm saying is, like, these little details have me primed in a way to... I can't necessarily point at her during any of what comes later and say, I know exactly what she's thinking or what she's feeling. But I think Haynes sets her up as a woman who is about like caretaking for others, but not caretaking for others, like in a passionate or absorbed or involved kind of way. A woman who seems primarily to feel that there are certain expectations and that as long as she is living up to those expectations, she's everything she needs to be. And I think the the scene that she doesn't articulate what she's feeling, but that kind of rhymes with that, matches it and sums it up, is when she's first entering her cabin in the the Mexican compound and she looks around it and bursts into hysterical tears. Mm. And the woman who comes to comfort her during that, during that scene does pretty much all the talking. You know, she never says, this is what I'm feeling, this is what I'm thinking. But I think what you're seeing in that moment is a woman who knew who she was and and what she needed to do to be a person and had it all progressively taken away from her and is now looking around and saying, is this who I am? This isn't who I wanted to be. And she just loses it. It's interesting because like hearing you describe like what Carol is thinking or feeling in these specific moments, like I have so much trouble imagining her with any sort of inner life or inner monologue, (laughs) you know, like she's such a blank and I I feel like purposefully so. And it comes out like whenever she tries to speak and almost everything she says, 
is punctuated with ums and upspeak and trails off and she can't like complete a thought. And I guess I read that as reflective of like a sort of inner emptiness but I don't think that that's something that's being presented like critically. I think it's just sort of she's a character as metaphor, first and, and foremost. I don't feel like I have any sense of her backstory or, like I said, in her life, nor am I supposed to because she's sort of a vessel for the metaphors that this movie is playing with. The only time you see her come into her own is when she can define herself by the illness and it gives her something to talk about and something to focus on and it kind of gives her a way to stand out. You know, those who, you know, those good talking is up to the uh, psychosomatic end of things. That's, that's evidence for that. I kind of talked about uh, how there's no like real arc to this film. And I am I'm not the first person to have made this point. I think it's in the Criterion essay for the film. But it's its structure is really sort of a circle like she Mm -hmm. she comes back around at the end when she's in her her igloo alone. You know, she's, again, sort of this small figure in a a big cavernous space uh, with no greater sense of like understanding of who she is or what she wants, but sort of the apex of that circle, you know, the 180 degree point of that circle, I feel is where she is at lunch with her friend and talking about her illness. And like, she had this way to define herself and understand herself for the first time, maybe ever. And then the second half of the film, once she goes to Renwood, that's like kind of systematically stripped away from her by the the rhetoric of the place and the expectations it places on her to take uh, responsibility for her own illness. I'd have to go back and look, but is it is it possible that the only two times we see her in close-up are at the beginning in the bedroom scene and at the end when she's looking in a mirror? I wouldn't be surprised, but I, I haven't mapped the film that way. Yeah. Kind of, it, I do kind of want to map this film, actually, and, and because, uh, like I said, this, the structure is kind of fascinating on both a, a narrative and a character level. Well, it's, it's very formally pristine, this film, um, mm-hmm. and cool. I mean, to speak to the, go back to speak to the character, to Carol, I think it almost becomes we'll see this again with swallow a commitment to a role that she's having to play in this marriage which is somebody who's not a problem <laughs> you know <laughs> someone who is a, who's a housewife and is not going to be a pain in the butt to her husband as the film sort of picks up on her she has fully committed to that role to the point to where i think she's erased whatever part of herself she might have had before we start with her as this sort of erased person and a lot of it i think has to do with money to a certain extent right i mean like the trade-off is like i give up whoever it is that i thought i was in exchange for privilege and the things that i'm I'm supposed to want in a capitalist society which is money and comfort and that sort of thing so if you maybe when you make that trade-off i mean we don't know what her life was before but i think you lose a part of yourself when you commit to playing this particular role i've got to say it feels to me like a lot of what we get about carol comes from the performance rather than the script the idea that she can't quite finish a sentence that she keeps trailing off is very significant but she's so bad at expressing her own feelings, her own emotions, her own desires throughout. She spends so much time passively listening to other people that I feel like a lot of what we get about who she is and how we feel about her just comes from Julianne Moore, like physically how she carries herself, the expression on her face. So what did you get from her performance that you might not have gotten from her otherwise? It's one of the best perms I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Like, it made me really want to get a perm. 
<laughs> well, it's you know I know she's not a, a large person by any stretch of the imagination. I actually saw one of her costumes from Magnolia up close, and like, wow, she is tiny. But she never comes off as tiny in most movies. But here, she is just just a vanishing figure. Uh, I mean, she's just dwarfed by her environment in every scene. I mean, I think that has to do, yeah, with her performance. Her voice is so critical to the performance. Mm-hmm. It's like a sub-Julie Haggerty level of, uh, of vocalization. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just someone who is, again, not in the role to where she's not going to assert herself and she's not going to be a problem. And even when things do go awry, I mean, she tries desperately and heartbreakingly to cover up the fact that she's in, in trouble and is having this moment. You know, it's an incredible performance by julianne Moore, though i mean it's just it, it is so every part of it the physical part of it the vocal part of it you know and then i think it's aided by haynes's style you know the, the distances with which he he shoots her i mean part of her smallness has to do with where he's placing the camera and and how the frame is sort of balanced out and that sort of thing that's not a mistake on a filmmaking level too so the things kind of complement each other i think i think there's also just an interesting degree to which the costumes change how we think about her the, mm. i don't often pay a ton of attention to the costuming in contemporary films but in this case i kept noticing for instance whenever she's in bed she's in these just like voluminous like house robes that completely hide her shape when she's in the aerobics class she's wearing just a really unattractive like leotard tights combination sort of a french cut thing that overemphasizes her hips and flanks and and underemphasizes her waist and bust and just makes her look especially around some of the other women around and behind her makes her look dowdy and you know if you've seen robert altman's shortcuts like you know she's she's not a dowdy woman she's a a very attractive lady but Haynes keeps finding ways to like underemphasize or deemphasize her body long before she starts turning into like this blotchy, pale, saggy-eyed shadow of her original self. And I, I feel like he's maybe trying to emphasize that, and this goes back to that sex scene at the beginning as well. He's maybe trying to emphasize that her breakdown isn't something that we should address in terms of like the deeroticization of an attractive woman. Like he wants us to see this as like the breakdown of a physical shell, but not the breakdown of a physical shell that be she, she should be taken as, oh, like she's just less attractive. I don't think he ever really wants us to see her as hot and have that kind of feeling of like, oh, she's lost her hotness. Like all of that seems like it would be reductive. So he eliminates it by disguising her body in various ways, disguising her identity in various ways until he can focus more on her disintegration than on her kind of her original form. I think about the sort of her quote unquote hotness in terms of vitality and like Carol is just like so stripped of any sense of vitality and like to go back to Moore's performance. I think another in addition to all the things you guys have cited, another place I really see that come out in her performance is her interactions with other people. You know, like a lot of this movie is just like looking at her by herself, but there's also quite a few interactions where Carol is just, it seems like every conversation she has, she would rather be anywhere else. Again, with the exception of that lunch where she's talking about her her sickness, which is like the only time we really see her having that, again, vitality. But just as an example, the aerobics class in the in the locker room afterwards talking to those women they're talking about this book, you know, they're just like yammering, having inane conversation. And when they attempt to bring her into it, 
it's just like a deer in headlights look. You know, it seems mm-hmm. like every social interaction, every like social nicety just sort of throws her off balance. And I think that's what kind of helps create the sense of Carol as someone who doesn't have any sense of herself or her place in the world. Or she has a sense of herself and her place in the world. And it's very specifically tied to these things that are bigger than herself. Like she's a, she's a very small person, mm-hmm. but she lives in a very big home that she's immaculately decorated that has to be just so in, in very specific ways. When she breaks down at the baby shower, oh, there's yeah. sort of a sense there of, and by the way, speaking of costumes, the, the dresses in that hmm. sequence, my God, they are so ugly. Uh, but they're all of a type, you know, they're they're very indicative of, like, this is a specific class of women, a specific social type of women. They all have on different colors, but they're all dressed basically the same in these big, sacky dresses that, again, kind of kind of hide their bodies. So she's a very small person in, in that scene in a very big dress, but in other scenes in a very big garden or a very big house. And I think she does have an identity. It's just entirely tied up in things that are external to her. And when she starts losing those things because of things that are internal to her, it's like a double betrayal. Like she's being forced to face her own identity and her own body in ways that she didn't even necessarily associate with herself like as a person the baby shower scene also is is a couple of moments uh the driving scene being another one where i mean everything haynes does is kind of a film in quotation marks in some ways he's always kind of referencing other films but if he ever wanted to make an outright horror film he could really make a really good one i mean he's (laughs) really good at, at making these sort of scary unsettling moments out of you know scenes from everyday life the score helps a lot in that yes. in that respect yeah. so oh, the yeah, score true. here is so is doing so much i mean the whole movie is doing so much but in terms of like taking it into that horror or even science fiction space which i think scott you described it as a science fiction film in mm-hmm. in that uh, interview which is i'll admit like not a signifier i would i would have gone to but i see it and the places I see it most are when that score is kicking in. The score is very 80s, too. And I don't know. Ed Tomney is not a composer. I know. I'm away from this movie. I'm looking him up now. Looks like, yeah, looks like he's he's done some other stuff for sure. Um, but this is seems to be his most prominent credit. Yeah, that score on some level feels like the upscale, art house, respectable version of a John Carpenter score. Mm. That's sort of like eerie driving synth, but like taken back and refined a couple of levels. It reminded me a little bit of Under the Skin oh, as yeah, well. Oh yeah, I can see that. Science fiction. Also science fiction and a very much a movie about uh, a woman and her body and yeah. how she relates to it and how she identifies through it. Well, this is something that uh, Genevieve touched on, but maybe we should dive into it a little more. How do the other characters in this movie play for you? Her husband in particular, the the Greg, the Xander Berkeley character, I feel like he wants to be supportive. And he, in another movie, he would would just be a monster. He'd, you know, be like railing at her or, or striking her and eventually splitting with her because he just can't relate to what she's going through and he's a villain preview of the next and movie here, in this pairing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> here he very clearly wants to be a nice guy but he's so baffled yeah. by the breakdown of 
like his perfect little life, his perfect little environment. He pouts like a baby over not getting sex when he wants. He pouts in a much more adult and maybe relatable and understandable way towards the end when he can't hug his own wife because even that's too much. And then he presses for the hug anyway and gets it, even though it hurts her. He's very clearly a man that doesn't know what to do with this element of his life and doesn't seem to feel much deeper than she does. Like he he also feels like somebody without much of an inner life. I feel like his son but- son says everything he can't say. <laughs> yep. Himself. I was just going to say that exact thing, Keith. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what do you have in mind there? Oh, just toward the end where he's like, like you know, rolling his eyes in frustration and, and being sarcastic toward his stepmom. And there's other moments in the film as well. Uh, yeah, I was thinking of the, the kid's essay about the game. Oh, yes. And, you, you know, and <laughs> that just, kid, uh, man. <laughs> but I mean, like, that's a worldview that came from somewhere. And from what we've seen of Carol, it seems unlikely that it, it came from her. So I think we can extrapolate that it is something that uh, comes from his father. Mm-hmm. There was one little difference, though, between what I remembered from this film and then seeing it again was I had pretty much thought of him as a one-dimensional monster in the past, and there's a, he's a little bit more of a three-dimensional you know, uh, <laughs> monster here. I guess in the sense that I, I, I think his reaction to what's happening to her is at least understandable even if it's not even if it's not the kind of reaction that you would want him to have or want a more sensitive person to have he's frustrated he and he doesn't know he, he doesn't know and he doesn't know what's going on but he's there you know he sticks around and and he and he sees her through all of these treatments and he sees and he you know sees her through her time at Redwood, far beyond what you might expect. I mean, somebody like that, you'd expect to just let her go, and he doesn't do that. And he and he does inter- intervene when his son mouths off to his mother. He scolds the son. I mean, he's not he's not horrible. He's just a horrible adjacent. He gets better over the course of the film too, where he gets he actually kind of like, okay, this is really happening. I really have to deal with this, and I do care about this woman. And he's genuinely glad to hear from her when she calls. I don't know how far his patience extends beyond the end of this movie, by which point she seems pretty permanently committed to living in this porcelain igloo. But he does, you know, uh, he doesn't, like you said, he doesn't just pack up and leave, as you might expect. Well, I think what's interesting about him, too, and especially the perception of him as a villain, is that he's also in many ways the audience surrogate Mm. of this film, because he is the one who I think is most deeply experiencing the confusion and helplessness about what is happening to Carol and who is the most sort of thrown by the ambiguity of this situation. And I think as a viewer, at least my experience of a viewer is kind of having a similar sort of frustration that like, and and again, that's not a critique, it's the design of the film, but a sort of frustration that I can't get a handle on what's happening. I can't envision a solution to this problem. I just have to exist in this ambiguity. And I am not getting any sort of satisfaction or payoff from it, you know, and I've lost the thread of whether I'm talking about him or me in that that situation. So so there you go. I, I guess I just kind of proved my point. I feel like there are other elements we can talk about in terms of kind of the emotional resonance of a film that is itself sometimes not very emotional and some of the other people around her but a lot of that is probably better explored in connections so as a way of wrapping up here let's talk about that ending 
it's as I say, I've read a bunch of different critics who've read it a bunch of different ways. And the idea that it could just as well be a metaphor for death as anything else, you know, a complete withdrawing from the world, from existence, even from the people around her, and a sort of peacefulness, but not a peacefulness that can engage with anything else. Like that was my idea while writing this. It can be read a lot of different ways. How did you read it? I mean, I read it as a kind of death, really. I don't, I mean, where else can she go? I mean, she's gone to this retreat and then she's gone to this retreat within the retreat and it's this cave, basically. This is like, you know, I don't, I mean, where else, where else can she go from there? She's not progressing in any way. Things are getting worse and worse and worse. And so I, I really feel like she's kind of gone to this place to disappear. And uh, to me, it's not an explicit death, but it's a, it's certainly was death-like. And that fits into the sort of circular structure of the film, you know, ashes to ashes. But one interesting thing I noticed about the final shot, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I went back and checked a couple times. The movie ends with her looking in the mirror and saying, I love you in a way that Mm. is very uncertain. But we don't actually see her reflection in the mirror, right? We like we see it's a mirror, like we see the room around her, but the angle the shot is that we don't actually see the mirror shot of her in it. It's just like the empty room around her, hmm. um, which just on a visual level kind of underscores the death metaphor to me as well. And the, the shot before, she almost seems to look directly at the camera, mm-hmm. too, which is unsettling, too. I mean, I find that scene very sad and scary, and, and you can't get a read on her, and we don't really know her, but we spend all this time with her, and you can't not feel for her. And this is someone who for whatever reason, has lost so much. She may not have had that much to begin with in a way, but whatever she called a life is just completely gone from her at this point, too. I think that scene with James LeGros' character, um, just as a side, James LeGros really should change his Wikipedia uh, picture it's uh, it's quite it's quite unflattering. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, is is uh, pointed too because there's there's no starting over here, and and I don't know he's hard to read too. I don't know if he's a, he's a sweet or a creep or or what, but but uh, there's no like you know second chance. There's no new chapter for her with him. Uh, there's just this room. It's devastating in its way and and scary. Well, I mean, it's just interesting to me that we are all taking such negative interpretations of the film. And there there have definitely been a fair number of people who see it as a like an ultimate triumph, like she finally wins. To me, it feels like one of those movies that ends at the exact right moment that you can try to take it as a victory because you don't see what comes next. And what comes next is almost certainly her getting sick again and uh, like having to find a place to retreat to that's even even further and there may not be a, a place to retreat but a lot of people have seen this as a movie about someone oppressed and controlled by society and controlled by expectations slowly retreating further and further until she's alone with herself and her love for herself and I'm just not the kind of person who would see what we get in this movie as like a positive ending. But can you, I guess, grok the people that do? I mean, I I certainly understand the impulse to read a positive ending or at least a, a conclusive ending, you know, but I feel like... From what I've read with Todd Haynes, he would uh, reject that impulse strongly, and therefore I do as well. <laughs> well, what I, I think <laughs> I find so powerful about this film is that in uh, if in a less accomplished film, less thought through, less beautifully constructed and and shot film, I think that the the ambiguity would be frustrating. But I, to me, I think it, it's you know to use Scott's favorite phrase, it's a feature, not a bug. Here, you know, mm-hmm. it, it is it is a part of what makes this movie great. Boy, I can't really see 
the way she says this kind of affirmation to herself feels like a very sad echo of of what she's been taught at this place at Renwood. I mean, in, in Renwood, I think as we we've come to understand as not a good place, as a place where that where founded by a guy who lives in a big house on a hill and um, who's kind of full of crap. And in the this is one where the cure is as bad as the disease and she's still at the end in a house in this little igloo on that property and the guy on the hill is is making money from her being there i didn't i didn't feel like there was anything that was hers at the end of that movie she'd gone from one domain in which she she was kind of a possession into kind of into another in my opinion well i think there's a lot more that we can say about radical loss and radicalization as ways to take control of your life and certainly a lot more to say about the portrayal specifically of disease of of mental illness and physical illness and how people around you interpret one or the other, how people around you treat one or the other. But all of that is going to come up in our connections uh, when we talk about this movie in conjunction with Swallow on our next episode. So I think we'll let this go for uh, Todd Haynes safe for the moment and we'll get into some feedback. time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. In our last feedback segment two weeks ago, we didn't actually talk about feedback. We just talked about how we're all doing in the pandemic era when the four of us are all working at home and navigating a rapidly changing field where the film calendar and the experience of movie going have abruptly altered in ways we've never seen in the modern era. So we're going to especially urge you to send in your letters right now about how you're approaching film. Are you seeking out disaster movies and films that remind you of the moment? Are you looking for pure escapism instead? Are you taking the time to get caught up on classics or comforting yourself with old favorites? And do you have questions for us about what to watch or not watch right now? To prime the pump on that idea a little, here's a letter from J.P. Ward talking about what the main real-world topics of the day remind him of in films right now. Keith, can you read this one for us? J.P. says, Our current pandemic has led film analysts to revisit some insightful, socially relevant films, as evidenced by your pairing of Panic in the Streets and Contagion. A few seconds of world reflection led my mind to Contagion, but I'm ashamed to say that my automatic mental picture of social distancing will always be The Happening. Specifically, the sequence where Mark Wahlberg invites his group of anchorophobes to split her off into smaller groups. The Happening is an entertainingly ridiculous film that I'll never consider good, but in some strange way, I think it might have posterity for future film analysts with an appetite for unintended metaphors. Are there any less than masterful films which your minds automatically associate with certain topics? Take care and don't go eye on too many lemon drinks. <laughs> I got that reference. I've, I've got an answer for this, but first, can we can we take a moment to pour one out for the happening? <laughs> Which people are really revisiting a lot of uh, like pandemic and illness and uh, worldwide crisis uh, and contagion kind of films these days, ranging from movies like Contagion and Safe to uh, trashier movies involving zombies. But not enough people are revisiting the happening, which I personally find one of the most entertaining, terrible films ever mm. made. I think we saw it together for the first time, right? The, I, think, I, think all, I think all of us. Yeah. yeah, yeah we, we played hooky from AV Club to go mm. see it. To all go see it together because we were so caught up in the ads. The ads seemed so exciting and like maybe a, a new stage in M. Night Shyamalan's career. And then <laughs> we got that movie with those performances. But Tasha, it was his first R-rated movie. <laughs> 
as as hey. insisted, it was was important. It was his first R-rated movie. I don't even know what you're trying to convince me of here, Keith. <laughs> I, it it feels like like metaphorically speaking, you're eyeing my lemon drink. <laughs> I, I still I still will defend the first ten or fifteen minutes of the film. I think it kind of was a good setup. Yeah. The follow through is not as strong. Okay, the the suicides, the mass suicides, yeah. and the sense of what's going on are yeah. pretty eerie. But that first fifteen minutes also includes teacher Mark Wahlberg trying to explain the themes of the movie to you in a classroom. Mm. Uh, with thing. a bunch of a bunch of high school students like punting the biggest most obvious softball questions at him i mean they might as well be saying mark Wahlberg, what is the theme of this movie man mark Wahlberg is an actor i really like when he is cast well and i think more often than not he is but when he is in the wrong role he is just dead on the screen and this yep. is this this movie the trouble with charlie i remember him being a big problem with that one um, I'm trying to think of other examples. I haven't seen all the money in the world yet. Can you speak to that one, Scott? He needs to be angry. Like he needs yeah. to be. You need to light a fire under him, and then he's really funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, like the, the departed Mark Wahlberg is what you want. I, and I think that that's uh, not just a question of the material; it's a question of the direction. This was the movie that did actually f- convince me that M Night Shyamalan is not accidentally getting these performances out of his uh, actors he's deliberately coaching them to be fake in weird big broad ways that said the actual question of this (laughs) this we just love talking about the happening this is not the first feedback ever (laughs) that has been derailed by the happening big mistake on jp's part to uh to bring up the the happening as the example here i I don't know that that's a mistake i I love discussing i I I feel like we've been baited we it is possible that we've been baited it's possibly even by jp before uh, J- JP is one of our most <laughs> most frequent uh, writers, and in, 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 in my mind, I think of him as good old JP Ward, just because he can always be relied upon for a good feedback uh, question. And he may have asked I, about the happening before. It is possible that, like you know, the, the next letter is going to be like, "Yeah, but what do you think about tropical malady? And what do you think about the fall? Just like, what do you? Th- we need to hear some more about Clueless." <laughs> He he just he knows how how to bait each each and every one of us. But getting to the actual question, as far as not so great movies that we specifically associate with uh, specific ideas or moments, for me that's always going to be the um, Tarsum's the Fall. T- <laughs> Sorry, yeah, it's just it's just Tarsum's the Fall. No, that movie's that movie's masterful. <laughs> Uh, I I believe it was 2005, the um, Steven Spielberg uh, War of the Worlds. That movie is great. Uh, not great. No, <laughs> super not great. No, no, no. Yes. except for the end. Like it's great all the way up until like the last. It has a minute fundamentally of the film. flawed problem and uh, a Tom Cruise performance that's just full of what are you doing in this movie? Mm. Uh, it's mm. got some some really memorable visuals. Uh huh. But. For the most part, it's hot garbage and Scott's wrong, oh, as usual. gosh. <laughs> but there's a sequence relatively early on where the sidewalks are cracking and the aliens are... I, I can't remember at this point if they're emerging from the ground mm-hmm. and raining down from the sky or just emerging, emerging from the from ground. The ground. I, they've been in sort of, sort of like underground storage, I guess. Regardless, the pavement starts cracking open and like these vast gaps start ripping open. And human beings come crowding around from everywhere to stand on the edge of them and peer down into them. And it's such a horror movie moment. You know, it's the fundamental equivalent of people saying, I'm pretty sure that there's uh, an insane slasher in this big old spooky house. Let's split up and go look for him one by one. It's just, you know, they're, they're baiting disaster. They're courting their own deaths. And at the same time, there was something... Just Spielberg shoots it in such a relatable way. You can absolutely understand why all of these idiots 
go running up to the edge of this fatal looking gulf to see what's going on, to see what the threat is, where it's coming from, to kind of court death in a way they're kind of thinking, I survived this so far, so I couldn't possibly die. And then the cracks open up wider and swallow some people and everybody screams and runs back. And the second the earth starts moving, they're they're right up on it again. Every time you see a disaster on the news that people have like run towards to film with their cell phones, I think of the Steven Spielberg War of the Worlds. Because it's good. Every time uh, we're all shut up in our houses during a pandemic and there are all these people on the news that are like rushing out to have fun contagion parties on the beach, I think of War of the Worlds. I think I'm always going to think of War of the Worlds when it comes to people stupidly doing stuff that like is very likely to be fatal. But it's just it's human nature to stick your head in the lion's mouth, to walk into the belly of the beast to see what it looks like, to consider yourself immortal and uh, do, hey, hold my beer, dangerous things. It is, you know, one of the most masterful sequences in a career <laughs> <laughs> by one of the great living filmmakers, Tasha. Um, rather than litigating War of the Worlds uh, 15 years too late, how about, uh, do you have any examples? The one that leaps to mind is um, Back to School, the Rodney Dangerfield movie that I've seen a thousand times. <laughs> um, and I always think about it when I have to consider who has gone to college. Like, I think about Donald Trump going in college. What were his college years like? What were his kids' college years like? What about all those large adult sons who have gotten into big legacy institutions because because their their more competent uh, parents went there first. I mean, like to me, Thornton Mellon buying a building in order to go to college with his son that happens all of the time in our society. That is not a fanciful idea that actually happens in our society, and uh, it's something I think about a lot. That in the triple Lindy, in terms of <laughs> in terms of sheer athletic feats. <laughs> really, that's the highest. That's the highest achievement I've I, I, you, I've seen in cinema, which is the the triple Lindy that ends the uh, film. What about the rest of you? My example is I'm going to fudge it a little bit because I tend not to rewatch bad films, but this film is. I think it's solidly considered a cult film now, but there are also probably people who would argue it is a quote less than masterful film. Uh, yet it is one that I think about probably once a week, at least once a month. And that is the 2001 film Josie and the Pussycats. Um, no, it's a great movie. <laughs> yeah, it is. But it is a, a light movie, but it definitely has things on its mind. I guess the reason I could, like thought of it in this context is, you know, it is an adaptation of a comic book, which comes with certain connotations. And it is a very sort of early aughts movie in a lot of ways. But by design, it's a film that has a lot to say, albeit in a very sort of light and glancing way, about consumerism and entertainment in, in the age of capitalism. And I, like every time, you know, there's some like horrible, you know, new adaptation or some sort of gimmick. Uh, I don't know. It, I just always think of Josie and the Pussycats fondly. It's a reference point for me quite frequently. I love that movie. I also, I just, I can't think at this point of uh, like popular pop bands without thinking of Josie and the Pussycats boy band. Dejour. Dejour means crash. Dejour actually means friendship. 
<laughs> so de jure is the name of a, an actual boy band and de jure is french for today or of the day mm-hmm. so it's basically the boy band yep. of the day uh and they die really really early in the film so you know today's boy band is going to be replaced by tomorrow's boy band but it's just it's played off so lightly in the film like this hilarious little in joke about boy band de jure and uh saying de jure means friendship on top of all of it i, I gotta say i'm, uh, I'm, I'm sort of proud i was a early adopter with josie and the pussycats i remember where i was when i saw it how excited i was i saw it with josh rothkoff uh and his girlfriend at the time and we went out afterwards and talked about how much we loved it and i i like appeared in several uh college classes to talk about about it i reviewed it positively i really love that movie for all the reasons that you mentioned Genevieve. i think it's so smart and funny and uh it has so much to say about what pop culture is you know and in in how um we become participants in a much larger commercial system you know when we engage in it you know whether we know it or not would you agree that it is a underappreciated film that yes. someone less than familiar with it might uh, kind of uh, unknowingly paint with the bad film brush yes okay so yeah. I, I did the assignment <laughs> you did you did i think it's Keith, a good one what about you Keith, what about this is a movie you? I'm pretty sure I underrated at the time, but I has you know I can remember why I didn't really care for it for as much as I thought I should uh, because I felt like you know I did the lead performance uh, I thought was uh, a grading and the look of it was at odds with the material. Uh, I need to revisit it. Spike Lee's Bamboozle, which just came out on on Criterion, because that's a film where is for as much as I thought didn't work when I first saw it uh, twenty years ago. The uh, the central metaphor is just stuck with me like nobody's business like the persistence of, of minstrelsy and in, in, in modern culture and, and the expectations of identity created by that and you know the way identity of African Americans has been turned into a performance in some ways I, I think it's a you know it's a really powerful central metaphor that I'm not sure was supported by the movie around it but maybe it was I need, I need to look at it again how about how about you do you what were your thoughts on that film I'm right there with you I had the exact same experience. I, I really did not like it when I saw it. And um, I think a lot of it was an objection to digital Dana video Wayans. and, oh, and the, yeah. st- the style of it at the time. It, and it also felt just a little like ungainly and out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, I, I have thought about it a lot since then. And, and I do want to re- to revisit it at some point for the reasons you mentioned. I think it has kind of been very sticky in the culture and and its ideas have kind of held up and there's a the one that always sucks with me is the scene where i forget which character but is applying blackface and it's got this really the saddest terrence blanchard music you know he's ever had in a movie playing over that scene uh and that image if nothing else is is has been really uh it's just been burned into my mind so i don't know i should watch it again burned in your mind is a representation of what though like what about that sequence like makes it come up for you in culture um how for me it's it's when i think of especially um african-american performers but for anyone really kind of like surrendering their dignity and their identity uh for the sake of show business and for the sake of the expectations of others that's what that scene means to me makes sense well jp i hope you're uh, happy with the the heavy sad place that you've taken all of us to <laughs> Well, here's a very different letter that's opening up a similarly wide field of discussion, but starts from a pretty narrow one. Uh, Genevieve? Matthew writes, Regarding your discussion of the happy lack of female objectification in Birds of Prey, as a cisgender hetero dude who tries his best to be feminist, I can't defend David Ayer's camera leering at Harley Quinn's butt in Suicide Squad, and I was viscerally offended when Zack Snyder's camera repeatedly fixated on Diana's posterior in Justice League. 
I can't help but wonder, however, if we're getting to the point of saying it's never okay for a movie to feature cheesecake appreciation of a particular gender, especially in a comic book movie, of all things. I think we can all agree that a pronounced male gaze in a four-quadrant PG-13 adventure such as Justice League or MCU films is inappropriate, but should unabashedly trash flicks like Suicide Squad really be held to the same standard? If Suicide Squad had been rated R, like Birds of Prey, would its male gaze have been any less objectionable, or should we simply draw a hard line between all future entertainment and erotica? I don't have strong feelings either way here, just many questions. So yeah, there are a lot of questions here, but there are also a couple of assumptions that I want to push back on. One is that the male gaze is erotica. Uh, that something like David Ayer focusing on Harley's butt or Michael Bay focusing so exclusively on the, his female character's asses. Why is it always ass men in cinema? <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, there's Russ Meyer. With, <laughs> there is, there is <laughs> Russ let me, Meyer. Let me push back here. Russ Meyer. <laughs> <laughs> that is very, very true. I don't think it is. I, th- I think there's a very, very large difference between erotica and the kind of male gaze that we're talking about here. Because erotica is specifically, if there, if there's a contract with the audience that erotica exists in order to, to get somebody off, you know, that it exists to be sexual. When Zack Snyder like starts sliding up uh, Wonder Woman's skirt in in Justice League, he's taking a character who is already established in a different movie as uh, a much more like powerful character who could didn't have to be coded as a lust object, and he's perving on her. Um, he just he shoots her in such a different way from Patty Jenkins. It's I have never seen a more distinctively obvious illustration of the male gaze than him sticking literally sticking his camera up under Gal Gadot's skirt. So uh, like I I definitely don't think we should be eliminating erotica and I don't think we should be eliminating like sexualized uh women in in films or sexualization of women in films but there's a, just a very big difference between sexualizing a woman in a sex scene or sexualizing a woman like to to show that she's an attractive woman and to show why someone male or female or the entire audience should be attracted to her and the kind of like lechy outside the narrative uh, kind of thing that people are talking about when they talk about the male gaze. That's one assumption, um, which we can get into, but sort of separately, it's not about the rating either. You know, you can have uh, PG rated movies that just feel a little icky, that feel like, you know, Uncle Gropey is looking down somebody's uh, cleavage when they're shooting a teenager or whatever. Like, it's not about the rating and an R rating is not a license to be more sexualized than, than the, the narrative needs or the character needs. The rating is about like who it's for, but just because it's for an older audience doesn't automatically mean, well, then you should definitely sexualize that hot teenager because, you know, who in the audience wouldn't want to see that. So yeah, there, there are a bunch of different assumptions here about who the male gaze is for and, and what it's doing. And I think the male gaze is, is sometimes appropriate. For instance, when Phoebe Cates gets out of the pool and takes off her top in slow motion in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, you're literally seeing that through the eyes of a horny young teenage boy. And it's it's meant to be illustrative of like where his mind is and how he sees things. That's just a really good example of using the male gaze for narrative purposes. Where I object to it is where it literally gets in the way of narrative purposes. And when, again, Zack Snyder is climbing up Gal Gadot's leg to hump it, 
that's it's not who we've established the character to be. It's not germane to the story at hand. It's literally him saying, I'm not really paying attention to what you're saying right now. I'm thinking about where I could put my hands up under that skirt. And at that point, that's where it gets gross. For me, I think it's the difference between sexualization and objectification. And, and I, I'm not sure that I'm the one to draw the line there or there is any one particular line. But it's sort of like, I don't know. I think I think you can feel it. Well, I think I think actually Harley Quinn in Suicide Squad versus Birds of Prey is actually a really good illustration sure. of, of of that line because she is an accessory in Suicide Squad more than she is a character. She her story exists in relation to Joker's story, and to an extent, it does in Birds of Prey as well. But that is a movie that is much more concerned with her inner life and her as as a person. And again, that uh, Birds of Prey is directed by a woman, which obviously complicates the idea of a of a male gay. But I can't think of any like uh, overt sexualization moments in in Birds of Prey. But it's also she's not desexualized in in that movie. And I think it, it is context that means so much. I mean, and even the the, the uh, you know Amy Heckerling directed the film that you mentioned, Tasha, Fast Times at Ridgemont mm-hmm. High. So it wasn't really a, a male doing the gazing in a traditional sense. But I think it really has to do with so much with context and um, why the camera is is where it is and what the scene is trying to accomplish. And, you know, I don't think it really has anything to do, as you said, with ratings or even with whether something is intended to be a hard R or not. I think it has to do with other factors. Or whether it's shot by a man or a woman. I mean, a good point on Amy Heckerling, but it's still, it's about who the shot's for and, and what it's trying to do. As far as the big question about well, like whether we need to eliminate the male gaze entirely from one type of movie or for another, like it, it as with so many other representation things, like sure, I, we can have cheesecake in movies. Cheesecake in movies is fun. So is beefcake. Can we have both? Yeah. As long as we have both, we're probably okay. And let's not assume that one is the default and anything yeah. that is not that is other. Exactly. So we always appreciate it when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll bring our virus watch frighteningly up to date with Carlo Mirabella Davis's Swallow, which just hit VOD. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at next picture pod so you'll always know when a new episode drops until then there's nothing wrong with constructing your own desert safety pod you know just in case just go out for a breath of air and you'll be ready for medicare the city streets are really quite a thrill if the hoods don't get you the monoxide will pollution pollution wear a gas mask and a veil Then you can breathe long as you don't inhale.